You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, You guys, we live in a ledger card world. A few years back, I worked as a student advisor at a place called Grand Canyon University. We've got a couple lopes, yeah. We've got a few former lopes, current lopes in the room. And when I was there, one of my jobs, among many jobs, was to be a debt collector. Yeah, great time. The pipeline from debt collector to pastor is a rapid one, let me tell you. And so I was, I was responsible at that time for managing financial records for hundreds of students. At uh, the last semester, I was there, more than 500 students. And we call those records ledger cards, which is a fancy financial term for a sheet that has all of the charges that have been charged to a student's account, that is, all the things they owe, and then all the payments that they've made in order to cover that balance. And then if there's stuff that they haven't covered, that's left at the bottom of the ledger card. So it's basically a way of measuring what they owe and if they've covered it or not. And that meant for my students, I could be a pretty intimidating person. Because remember, we're talking about 18, 19, 20-year-olds who have never paid thousands of dollars for anything let alone school, which they've always thought is just free and normal, many of them, anyway. And so they knew that their ledger card, if it wasn't squared away, when they'd come into my office, they could be rejected. Their acceptance to GCU could be removed. It was a high-pressure thing for these kids in a lot of ways. And that meant that I often had two types of responses from the students who'd come into my office. The first was the horror movie response. Students would come in knowing that they had not yet paid their bills, And so they would often put their appointment back to the very end of the semester, wait till the last minute to talk about it, and when they'd come in to the lobby, they'd be shaking. They'd sign the check-in paper and sit down in the lobby, just waiting with their eyes open, like like seeing a ghost. Now I'd come into the lobby and call their name, and they'd gasp. They'd come up to me, and their hand would be sweaty and clammy, real awkward and gross. (laughs) And I'd walk them back to my office, and I'd go through what they owed to the university, something they probably already knew, and then they'd get their phone out, and they'd be shaking, and they'd be like, I need to call my mom. And they'd call their mom about finances, and it was like they were in a horror movie. And the reason they reacted that way is largely because they knew beforehand that their acceptance was at stake. That they could be rejected because of this ledger card, if it wasn't balanced. But that was just one type of reaction. I also had another type of reaction. Students who'd come in, and they'd be more like uh, living in a musical. They'd come in with chest out, feeling happy. They'd sign their name down and sit down in the lobby and wait for me. I'd call their name, and they'd hop, skip, and jump over to me and shake my hand. How you doing, right? We'd walk back. Everything's cheery. And then we'd talk about money. And those students probably weren't aware that they owed something. And so I have to break the news to them. Hey, your acceptance at GCU is at risk right now because this hasn't been paid. And since they had already thought that they had covered their bills, they'd get defensive or angry. They'd be like, are you sure? Wait, hold on. Run those numbers again. I'm pretty sure you've got this wrong, the person who looks at ledger cards 500 times a day. right? I've got it wrong. They paid their bills. They covered their bills. They couldn't handle the possibility that, well, their acceptance was at stake, that they could be rejected because of their lack of payments to the university. And both of these responses from these students, the horror movie student and the musical student, actually come from the same place in them. See, both students knew that in the eyes of GCU, their acceptance was conditional. It was dependent upon things that they would do, their behavior. 
their expectations, their actions. It was all dictated by that ledger card. And the weight, the weight of needing to maintain their acceptance through their behavior, it was burdensome to them. And this isn't just a thing in financial spaces or in university spaces. We live in a ledger card world. Our entire lives, we're trained to believe that true love and care and acceptance is dependent upon our ability to perform a certain way or to fulfill certain expectations. We're often taught this from a really young age. Growing up, our parents sometimes, either implicitly or explicitly, tell us that their love and affection is dependent upon certain behaviors we embrace. So getting good grades or performing well in a sport or just being quiet in public sometimes. All of those are turned into ledger card measurements that will lead to either acceptance or rejection. And that trains us growing up to enter the adult world as people who are constantly looking for the behaviors we need to emphasize in order to be accepted. Ever felt that? You go into a room and you audit the room and see, okay, what do I need to do? How do I need to behave? What ways do I need to maybe hold myself back or let myself go in order to be accepted in this room? We do that with new friends, we do that on first dates, schools, oftentimes even in church. Invisible ledger cards are driving the way we live and move in the world. And it's not just happening out there, by the way. It's not just other people and places that are putting that on us. We often put that on one another. We often, in our own hearts, hold ledger cards that we evaluate everyone around us by. Think about it in your own life. How often do you hold back your approval of someone until they become what you want? something that you're looking for? How often do you avoid or discredit or overlook someone else because of a particular culture or habit they embrace? We all do this. Ledger card living is natural for us as humans, and the result is that we become people who are deeply burdened all the time. Many of us are burdened by the shame of the past, the things we know we've done and that we feel like if we reveal those things, we're going to get rejected because of it. We're going to lose our acceptance because of it. Or we live with a fear of the future. What if I mess up my ledger card tomorrow? What if I do something or say something or behave a certain way that leads to my rejection? And as a result of the shame of the past and the fear of the future, we live anxiety-filled lives in the present, constantly running after affirmation and acceptance that we never really find because it's always at risk. Ledger card living creates restless hearts in a restless world. And this isn't new for us in the 21st century, guys. This has been around for a long time, this type of living. In fact, one of the primary aspects of the ministry of Jesus and his earliest followers was to refute ledger card living that had corrupted so many parts of human existence and so many parts of our spiritual lives. Jesus came so that all people might be freed from those burdens, freed from the pursuit of love and acceptance that's dependent on their behavior. And his followers were called to be people who experienced freedom from those burdens and then lifted those burdens from the lives of their neighbors. Over the last few weeks here at Midtown, we've been talking about that new community, the way that they lived and moved in the world. Uh, We see uh, what that community looked like in the book of Acts. We've been calling this series, What's Next? Because this is what comes after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This new community of people who is constantly following and learning and growing in their understanding of who Jesus is and what he's up to in, in the world. And today... We're going to see that for all the amazing work that this new community was doing, they still had to battle the pervasive influence of ledger card living in their midst. That innate human tendency to attach love and acceptance to performance and behavior had a pesky habit of showing up again and again and again. 
And so today, in this passage, we're going to learn how we can fight ledger card living, how we can become deeply free of those burdens and proclaim that freedom to others. With me? All right, friends, open up a Bible, if you have one, in front of you. Uh, We're going to be reading uh, from Acts chapter 15. Acts is the fifth book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church. And as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage in Acts 15 is not one that often gets a lot of attention Not many sermons are taught on it, and not many people flock to this for, like, good verse-of-the-day inspiration. And a big reason for that is because it's a long theological debate about foreskin and what to do with it. That's what's happening in this passage. And that's not, like, a fun dinner table conversation for most of us, I would imagine. If that's your dinner table conversation, invite me over for dinner. I'd love to be a part of it. (laughs) Of course, Jordan Hoyt would talk about this over dinner. He's not lying. Uh, On the surface, from our modern perspective, this can feel really culturally distant. We're not fighting about this anymore. So why is this really all that important for us? And oftentimes, that mentality can make us skip over this and many other passages like this in the Bible. But I think it's important for us to remember what the Bible is and what the Bible isn't when we have that tendency to just want to skip over things that maybe are weird or uncomfortable or distant for us. Uh, There's a great quote from a scholar named John Walton that gives us a good insight into what the Bible is and what it isn't. He says, the Bible was written for us But it wasn't written to us. It was written for us. It wasn't written to us. In other words, when we come to a passage that's loaded with all sorts of confusing cultural components like this, we want to remember that while this may not have been written to us immediately in the 21st century, it's still written for us, for our growth and our learning and our development as disciples of Jesus. We can learn from this about what it looks like to follow Jesus in our own time. And we can also find all sorts of parallels to this passage in our lives today. And so in order for us to grasp what this is saying for us today, we have to do a good job of understanding what this is saying to the people in that time. At this point in the story of Acts, we've seen that the gospel message starts 
in the lives of Jesus' first century Jewish followers, which makes a lot of sense. Jesus was Jewish, and he said that he came as the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. So many of his followers, and the news started there. And the result is that for many of those early Jewish Christians, they understood following Jesus as a new Jewish sect. And they had an expectation that if you were going to follow Jesus, you'd have to become Jewish first. But then, as God tends to do, he throws a wrench in those plans. And just uh, last week, we talked about how he threw a wrench in in these plans with the story of Cornelius. Cornelius was a very non-Jewish Roman centurion. But he was curious and compelled by the God of the Bible. And he received a vision from God and came to faith following Peter's vision and proclamation. And Peter proclaimed to him that God shows no partiality to Jew or Gentile. And so suddenly, the God that's revealed to us in Jesus was breaking down this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. You didn't have to become Jewish to be a Christian. It was moving beyond that division. God's love and approval was available for all people, including those with less impressive ledger cards. Actually, that's oftentimes the people that Jesus went to, the least impressive ledger card folks. The cultural and religious outsiders were being welcomed into God's family and receiving his love and acceptance and becoming his followers. And you'd think that would be news received with great joy. A gospel for everyone, welcoming everyone, and transforming everyone sounds awesome. There's just one problem. The Christians. The Christians got in the way. As is often the case, the things standing most in the way of the gospel message in this passage It's not the non-Christians, and it's not even the enemies of Christianity outside the faith. It's the early Jewish Christians themselves. See, oftentimes, it's our own deeply entrenched religiosity that prevents us from participating in and seeing the work of God. Sometimes our religion is the greatest enemy to God. Many of these early Jewish Christians had reverted to ledger card living in the new faith. They said, these Gentiles, they're certainly welcome. They just need to come in on our Jewish terms. God would accept them, but only on certain terms and conditions. And the primary way this was expressed was through the act and accompanying responsibilities of circumcision. And that act in and of itself was certainly important, but circumcision for the Jewish people also meant way more than just the act itself. To be circumcised meant to be a part of God's family, and that meant you embraced the living in God's family. It wasn't just a religious act. It was a way of expressing God's love and grace to the world by being a called-out people who represented that to the world. It was crucially important. And many of the things that they practiced are actually in our scriptures. You can go and read them in the book of Leviticus and other places. So they'd eat certain things and not eat certain things. They'd wear certain things and not wear certain things. All as a way of expressing who God is to the world, that they might know that God. They were contextual behaviors that were embraced in order to communicate God's love and grace to the world. And so naturally, they expected that these Gentile converts would embrace those practices. They mentioned circumcision, and then they mentioned the law of Moses as well, so extending it beyond just being circumcised. They're expected to meet certain cultural and religious requirements, and so suddenly, for these new Gentile converts, the ledger card is getting real long. And, if you're an adult man, getting real painful as well. And this view, that people need to perform or believe or behave, perform or behave a certain way before they can be truly accepted and loved by God, It became so entrenched in the thinking of some Christians that in that day, a group of them were called the Pharisee Party. That's who's represented here. They've been historically referred to as the Judaizers. They were insisting that the way to Jesus was only their way to Jesus. God's love and acceptance is available for all people. They're just strings attached. And that's exactly the view of God that Jesus came to resist. And so now, in Acts 15, the apostles commit to fighting 
And the description of their encounter here reminds us of three things that we need to remember in order to fight ledger card living in our own time. We need to remember what the gospel is, we need to remember what the gospel does, and we need to remember what barriers exist to the gospel. What the gospel is, what the gospel does, and what barriers exist to the gospel. First, what the gospel is. Notice right at the start of this passage that as soon as Paul and Barnabas hear the notions of the Pharisee party, it says they had no small dissension and debate with them, which is a really polite English way of saying it went down. They brought it. They said this message can't continue. This isn't the message of Jesus. They had it out with this notion that God's acceptance was dependent upon human performance or behavior. And it's noteworthy to consider the lengths that Paul and Barnabas go to to fight this notion. Remember who they were. They were missionaries in the Gentile world. They were really, really busy. Their careers and work were taking a lot of their time and energy. And it was hard work. It was good work. It was messy and time-consuming. And yet, in the middle of that work, they stop in order to have a theological debate. Which sounds really like most of us wouldn't stop really good work to hash out some theological issue, right? But they say that it's really important. They actually travel to Jerusalem, which was the hub for Christianity in the first century, in order to hash this out with the other apostles. Why? Why step aside for some theological debate about uh, this issue, right? Circumcision that seems a little light in comparison to the work that they're doing. Well, here's why, friends. This debate is about the very core of who God is. This isn't some pretentious academic disagreement about whether God could create a boulder that he could or couldn't lift, right? That's not what they're doing here. What's at stake is the very character of God. And these apostles knew that the way we answer that question shapes everything else. The way we answer the question of who God is shapes everything else. They knew, as A.W. Tozer once famously put it, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Guys, the most life-giving and the most damaging parts of our spiritual lives can always be traced back to the way we picture God and his love and acceptance of us. If our picture of God is a ledger-keeping one, God is making a list and checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice, he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, right? if that's our picture of God, it will lead us to crippling anxiety, and it will burden us in our spiritual lives. And Paul and Barnabas know that danger, and so they intentionally fight against it by debating with him. They clarify what the gospel is and how it destroys a ledger-card picture of They remind the Judaizers that Jesus didn't come to tell us the things we need to do in order to be accepted and loved by God. He came to proclaim the good news that God already accepts and loves us as we are and then enables us to become the people we were made to be. That's actually what the story of Jesus is all about. It's about God coming to us, not us going to God. God, in Jesus, comes to us, people who didn't have impressive ledger cards, and says God loves you. God wants to see you flourish and live. And the people who heard him said, ah, no, we're good. But he kept loving them. He kept serving them. He kept caring for them over and over and over in remarkable ways. All of the people who were deemed the farthest away were cared for deeply by God, by Jesus. And many of the people who benefited from ledger card living in that day didn't like that message all too much. And so they said, no, 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 we need to get rid of this. This is dangerous. And so they killed him. Jesus was crucified for all the ways that we've harmed one another and for all the ways that we harm ourselves in this mode of living. And then he rose again. And you'd think at the resurrection, he'd finally be like, all right, these people, I've had enough, right? But he doesn't. He resurrects and he says, hey, the door's still open. Come to me. 
Come back to me. True life, true acceptance, true love is yours in God. All you need to do is come back home. That's it. That's the whole story of Jesus. It's what God has done for us out of his love for us, not what we need to do for God in order to earn his love. The gospel is not about a cosmic debt collector coming to see if we've got things in order. It's about a cosmic father who takes on all debts and welcomes us home with open arms. Friends, love and acceptance from God isn't something we achieve. It's something we receive. It's a gift that we can only experience when we trust in who Jesus is and what he's done. I like how theologian Oswald Chambers puts it. He says, the questions that truly matter in life are remarkably few. And they're all answered by these words. Come to me. The Lord's words are not do this and don't do that, but come to me. If I will simply come to Jesus, my real life will be brought into harmony with my real desires. I will actually cease from sin and I will find the song of the Lord beginning in my life. Friends, we all need to hear this whether we're new to this life of following Jesus or not new. See, many of us have heard this idea of Jesus' gift to us and his grace if we've been in the church for any length of time. But no matter how long we've been following him, it's still super easy for us to turn God into something that looks a lot like us. To turn God into a ledger-keeping God. To turn God into a God that says love and acceptance is conditional based upon how great our prayers are or our church attendance is or the way we love our neighbors. We can easily revert back to this because it's natural for us. We need to hear this over and over and over again. We need to constantly clarify what the gospel is in our lives. And so if you're in this room and you feel burdened by a ledger card view of God, if you've ever felt that you can't approach him, that you haven't done enough, that you're disqualified in any way, hear Paul and Barnabas loud and clear. There's nothing you do, nothing you have to do, nothing you can do to earn the love and acceptance of God because he already loves you. He already gave everything because he loves you, and he's already waiting with open arms to receive you back. Just turn around. So we fight ledger card living by remembering what the gospel is, but we also fight it by remembering what the gospel does. See, when we've clarified the gospel in this way, what we begin to realize is that it provides us unparalleled freedom. We were just singing about it earlier. This is what makes the gospel unique. Every world religion claims that true love or acceptance or life is found when we practice certain behaviors. In Eastern modes of thinking, for instance, they believe that humans are trapped in a constant cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. That this world is somehow illusory or corrupt, and that our job is to overcome that world by certain religious practices. We rise to the occasion. We find true acceptance and love and peace through our own effort, through our own enlightenment and elevation. And in other, more Western religious thinking, the notion is that humans commit to balancing their ledger cards before God. Do the right things and avoid doing the wrong things. And as long as your ledger card is balanced, then God will accept you. It's about advice and good behavior. That's what religion is all about. All world religions, while they often have helpful and good things to say to us, they ultimately begin with burdens. They begin by placing burdens on us, limiting freedom, and chaining us to the message that our performance, or lack thereof, will define whether we find love, acceptance, and life. Which is what makes the gospel so radically different. The gospel doesn't squelch freedom, it leads to freedom. Because rather than starting by placing burdens onto us, it starts by taking them off. It starts by saying that Jesus has done all of this, and that all we need to do is believe and trust in him. The love and acceptance of God is already yours. You just believe Trust and walk with Jesus. 
That's radically freeing in a world of religious burden and ledger card making. I love how theologian Robert Farrar Capon puts it. He says, Christianity is the proclamation of the end of religion, not of a new religion, or even of the best of all religions. If the cross is the sign of anything, it's the sign that God has gone out of the religion business and solved all the world's problems without requiring a single human being to do a single religious thing. What the cross is is actually a sign. Uh, what the cross is actually a, is a sign of the fact that religion can't do a thing about the world's problems. That it never did work and it never will. You guys, a life with Jesus isn't about good advice to spruce up our ledger cards. It's freedom that comes in knowing and trusting God has thrown out the ledger card altogether. And the minute we trust that that's true, the minute we trust that this is who God is in Jesus, we experience freedom from the burden of having to find love and acceptance on our own effort. When we know we're beloved by God, we experience real freedom from the burden of parental expectations. When we know we're beloved by God, we experience freedom from a burden of career success as an identity-forming value. When we know we're beloved by God, we experience freedom from the burden of a specific relationship status that defines our acceptance in life. Yes, so often our lives are spent chasing after love and acceptance, but what if the thing you've been chasing has always been within your grasp? What if the acceptance you've always been looking for was already yours in Jesus? When we come to realize this, in each of our desperate pursuits for true love and acceptance, it gives our souls unparalleled freedom. That's the sort of freedom that Peter is getting at in verses 10 and 11 when he stands up in the middle of this theological debate. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke, a burden, a burdensome thing that neither our ancestors or we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. He's reminding these Judaizing believers that in attempting to force Gentiles to embrace certain cultural Jewish practices, they're actually ruining the freedom of the gospel made available to them in Jesus. They're starting by adding burdens, not by taking them off. So Peter is appealing to freedom here, the freedom that we have in knowing God's gracious and expansive love for each and every one of us. So we fight ledger card living by communicating what the gospel is and what the gospel does. And finally, this passage is a reminder to all of us that barriers can still creep in pretty quickly in how we communicate the gospel. We've got to know those barriers beforehand. See, it's often easy for us to think that this sort of ancient, burdensome religious thinking is just something that they did back then, right? Those ancient, primitive people. But we do this all the time. We always put our little cultural expressions in front of love of Jesus. We make it Jesus plus something else for other people. Sure, they can follow Jesus, they've just got to give up their drinking first. Sure, they can follow Jesus, they've just got to sing and worship like I do. They've got to believe this little niche theological thing, like I do. Sure, they can follow Jesus, they've just got to have the same political preference as I do. Sure, they can follow Jesus, they've just got to look a certain way, or speak a certain way, or dress a certain way, or act a certain way. We do this all the time. Sometimes we, Christians, have more rigid requirements than God to following God. And if we're not careful... Those requirements, if we're not doing a good audit of those things, they're going to build up in a self-elevating pretentiousness to our specific expression. They're going to build up in us this idea that our way is the only possible way. Right? There's a 
pastor friend of mine who officiated a, a multi-ethnic wedding recently between a person of Anglo descent, a white person, and a person of Latin descent, a non-white person. And the wedding was scheduled to start at 2 p.m. And right at 2 p.m., all the white people showed up. But none of the non-white people showed up. Not even the bride. And then 30 minutes later, 40 minutes later, an hour later, people kept trickling in. And finally, the wedding started about an hour after two. And the ceremony went great. But then after the ceremony, my friend was moving around the reception and the dinner, and he was hearing a lot of conversation. All the white people were saying, how terribly irresponsible, right? Irresponsible. They'd show up this late for this thing, right? Not only did they notice the cultural difference, but they seemed to elevate their culture over and against the people near them. And all the non-white people were saying, man, white people are just so stuck up. Loosen up. We're at a wedding. This isn't a business meeting. I still had to get ready. I was still getting ready. This is a party. Loosen up. Everyone at the wedding thought that their way was the way. Their cultural expression was the cultural expression. And every other one needed to get on their terms. They wanted everyone to fit into their perspective. That's human nature. And if we're not careful, we'll let this leak into our spiritual lives. We'll let this leak into the way that we communicate the gospel to others. And we'll put barriers, unnecessary, non-God-given barriers, between Jesus and others. And so I think there's a few helpful questions that we need to regularly ask ourselves so that we can identify the things that we're maybe putting in between people and Jesus. Questions like, what cultural practices might I be wrongly naming as necessities for all people? What traditions might I embrace to the exclusion and dismissal of others? What specific things might I be placing before Jesus in my communication of what it means to be a Christian? I love uh, how the scholar Lloyd John Ogilvy puts it in his book, The Drumbeat of Love. He says, not only do we relinquish anything which will cause our judgmentalism of others, but we're also to remove anything which will cause them to judge us and miss our message. So habits, quirks of behavior, Irrelevant beliefs and associations which cripple us in getting through to the people must go. No strings can be attached to people or to the extent to which we will go to reach them with unqualified love. Yes, the world is longing for ledger-free love. Because everywhere else you go, there are strings attached to love and acceptance. And you... Everyone of you in this room has heard the good news of the gospel. Many of you have experienced it in your own lives. You've experienced the freedom of what that looks like. Which means you go out into that ledger, card, inundated world with good news. News of freedom. So let's, as Midtown, go and clarify what the gospel is. Let's clarify what the gospel does for us. And let's be people who actively consider what barriers might exist, what barriers we might be building between us and others, between Jesus and others. Because when we do, we'll experience radical transformation. We'll become people whose burdens are lifted and who lift the burdens of our neighbors. We desperately, desperately need them lifted. Amen? Let's pray.